0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org.
1: I'll tell you a little bit about how this uh, talk originated. Um, I have another TI talk called um, Can a Feminist Be Pro-Life? And after giving that talk a few times, I realized that really for the discussion to be productive, we actually really ought to be starting further back. Right. And so um, and, and just talking about the issues that are at stake in abortion itself. Um, and so I'm, sh- I'm sure many of you uh, have had discussions about abortion and having had them, um, regardless of your, your viewpoint, I think you probably know what a difficult topic it is, especially if you're talking with someone who disagrees with you. Um, and given the, the strength of the emotions that come into play and the depth of the disagreement, it can seem, and has seemed to many, that any rational discussion of abortion is just impossible, right? That, that we just have a fundamental, intractable disagreement. And I don't know if that's true or not. But I do think that, that philosophy is very helpful when it comes to talking about things like abortion, because especially when emotions run high, it can, get, it can help to get clear on what the questions are. And philosophers on both sides of abortion, on the of the abortion debate, however vehemently they disagree about the answers are at least in agreement about the questions that are at stake. And I think that's really interesting, right? That there, there actually is a lot of in, uh, agreement about what questions we would have to solve. And so my goal tonight is not to change anyone's mind um, about abortion, but to just explain what philosophically speaking, is disputed when people dispute the morality of abortion and to explain why different philosophers give very different answers to those questions. And I think that's important knowledge to have. It's not just that such knowledge helps one better understand one's own view, but it can help us better understand the views of those we disagree with. And the better we understand each other, the greater the chance of civil conversation. So what I'm going to do here tonight is I'm just going to motivate and describe the two big philosophical questions that philosophers agree are at the heart of debates about abortion, and I'm going to explain why some philosophers answer those questions one way and some philosophers uh, disagree. Okay? So I've been talk I've been uh, teaching abortion in the classroom ever since 2004 when in my first class after finishing a dissertation on Thomas Aquinas and the Infused Virtues, I was assigned to teach contemporary moral issues, right? And I I suddenly had to get up to speed on a lot of things that I I didn't really know that much about. But when I teach abortion, I always ask students to, to do a thought experiment, right? I say, pretend you don't have a view, right? Pretend you haven't, almost everybody has views, but pretend you don't, right? Pretend you haven't figured out what you think about abortion, Um, And you're trying to determine whether it would be acceptable in a given instance. What would you want to know? And in 18 years of asking this question, I always get the same answers, right? And they they kind of fall into two groups, uh, one of which has to do with the fetus, one of which has to do with the woman, okay? So what are the questions do people say they would want to know about the fetus, right? People say that they would want to know facts about fetal development, right? At what point um, does the fetal, uh, can the fetus feel pain? What point does it develop traditionally human features? What point can it survive outside the womb? Others say that they would want to know details about the child itself, right? Does the child suffer from some kind of disease or disability? Is the child... and A great many, and this is my absolute favorite answer because I find it so confusing, is people say they would want to know whether or not the developing fetus is a life, right? And all of these questions, I think, are a little bit confusing, but I'm going to argue that they have the same philosophical question at heart to the extent it makes sense to ask them, okay? Start with, is the fetus a life? The problem with this question is that it's not clear what we're asking. Right? The developing fetus is certainly alive. It is a highly organized, organic, living being. It's a member of the species, Homo sapiens. But these facts are not really in dispute. Right? So when students say that the question at stake in debates about abortion is the question of whether or not the fetus is alive, they must mean something more. But when, but when I ask, What do you mean by that? People often find themselves hard-pressed to articulate what the more that they mean is. And it's likewise unclear how information about the developing fetus's ability to feel pain or its physical features could help resolve questions about the morality of killing it. Animals feel pain. Most of us feel no qualms about the fact that they are regularly killed and eaten. Some human beings, on the other hand, never develop the ability to feel pain. And no one argues that this fact legitimizes killing them. The fetus's physical resemblance to a mature adult is similarly unhelpful. A thing does not automatically possess the same value as a mature human merely because it resembles a mature human. If that were the case, we would have to treat statues in wax museums a lot differently than we do. And similarly, um, lack of resemblance isn't indication of a lack of value, right? It wouldn't become moral to kill somebody merely because that person no longer resembled a human being. But when I ask more questions, it usually turns out what that what people really want to know is whether or not the fetus is one of us, right? Whether or not the fetus is a person. Um, does it have the same moral value? as a mature adult. When opponents of abortion claim that the fetus is a life or point out that it can feel pain at 20 weeks or that it has distinct well-defined toes at 10 weeks gestation, what they usually turn out to be trying, however inarticulately to say, is that fetuses are in some important way the same as the rest of us, and hence just as morally valuable. And when supporters of abortion say that the fetus is just a clump of cells or not a life, they usually turn out, however inarticulately, to be making the opposite claim, that fetuses are, importantly, different from the rest of us, and because of that difference, not as morally valuable. So without belaboring the point, it is clear that a similar intuition must undergird the notion that it is or is not acceptable to abort a fetus because it is disabled or unwanted. If we don't think such considerations would justify the killing of, say, a toddler, but do think such considerations justify the killing of a fetus, then the implication is that the fetus is not yet one of us. So this question, which I refer to as the question of personhood, is one important prong of Um, of the philosophical debate surrounding abortion. But other answers to my what would you want to know question focus on something different. They focus on the woman who bears the child. Some say they would want to know whether the child was was the result of rape or incest, whether the woman wants to carry the child, and whether carrying the child will adversely affect the woman's health. And these focus not on the moral value of the fetus itself, but on the burden pregnancy places on the mother. Consider, for instance, the very common argument that abortion is justifiable in cases of rape or incest. No one who makes this claim, or no one that I am aware of, intends to claim that the evils committed by a parent make the fetus itself less morally valuable, right? That a fetus that would otherwise be owed the same consideration as anyone else is somehow forfeited its rights because of its father's depravity. Far to the contrary, the fetus's value doesn't seem to enter into such arguments at all. The claim seems rather to be that carrying her attacker's child is a burden no woman should be required to bear, and similarly for the other considerations listed here. Arguments like these are somehow sometimes referred to as the feminist argument for abortion, And for good reason, because they are focused on the question of what can or cannot be justly required of women. Okay, but I want to make an important preliminary point, right? There's there's two questions, right? So I've I've defined two questions, personhood, bodily rights, okay? Um, It's absolutely vitally important to know that the question of personhood and the question of bodily, bodily rights are totally distinct from each other, right? They're different and independent philosophical questions. You can, um, your view on personhood doesn't doesn't, um, and needn't um, entail certain views about bodily rights and vice versa. And you might support abortion if you support abortion for either reason. Okay, I I find this super interesting, right? Because Marianne Warren, right? One of the most prominent, um, well-known, widely anthologized supporters of abortion, is, is very um, adamant that if we could establish the personhood of the fetus, abortion would be wrong, right? She says, you, don't get, you, you can't kill someone merely because they're trespassing on your property, right? If you could show me, she says, that the fetus is a person, I would be against abortion. She's very clear about that, right? Um, but Judith Jarvis Thompson, right? Another very famous, widely anthologized proponent of abortion, says the opposite thing, right? Judith Jarvis Thompson says, well, look, even if the fetus isn't a person at conception, it becomes one very quickly afterwards, long before birth. And she says, I don't care. She says, you, I will accept for the sake of argument that the fetus is a person and has every bit as much of a right to be alive as you or me. And it's still okay. Um, because the woman's right trumps whatever value the fetus has. And I'll explain that argument as I go along. But the the point I want to emphasize here is that support for abortion is not like a uniform thing, right? Your reasons can be very different. On the other hand, right, opposition to abortion typically implies a position about both questions, right? So opponents of abortion typically believe both that the fetus is a person with every right that, um, uh, that the rest of us have. And that given the personhood of the fetus, um, the mother carrying that fetus has obligations to it, right? So the opponent of abortion is taking a stand on both philosophical questions. Whereas the support of abortion might well only be taking a stand on one of them, okay? So in what follows, I'm gonna examine each of those philosophical questions in turn. And I'm going to explain why some philosophers answer those questions one way and why some of the philosophers answer those questions in a different way. And I'm going to start with the question of personhood, okay? Personhood is a kind of shorthand person. Um, Basically, what's what's being claimed when we claim someone as a person is that they they have the kind of rights and freedoms, they're owed the kind of rights and freedoms guaranteed in, say, the Declaration of Independence, right? That, That they have... A kind of in, intrinsic inherent moral value, the same moral value that we think that we ourselves and those sitting near us have. Okay. Um, so what makes something a person? Philosophers answer this question in two very different ways. One very simple answer is to say, look, any member of the species, homo sapien, young or old, abled or disabled, is a person. Right? If, if I know that this being is a member of the species Homo sapiens, I know that this being is a person and is owed all of the rights and considerations due to, any, due to any other person. A rather different answer is to say no. Having Being morally valuable, being the sort of thing that is owed the rights and considerations outlined in the Declaration of Independence requires the possession of certain characteristics, characteristics that not every member of the human species has, okay? I'm gonna look at answer number two um, and explain why some people find answer number two deeply intuitive, um, and then talk about some consequences of answer number two, and then go back and look at answer number one. So let's look at um, what answer number two um, claims. So answer number two, right, is that it is that our philosophers who defend answer number two typically maintain that the fetus is not a person at the get-go, right? Doesn't have moral value at the get-go, but that something happens in the process of development. And after that something happens, that person, uh, that, that human being becomes a person, okay? So on this view, if you, if you wanna see it in a Venn diagram, right? If you think members of the, of the human species is the yellow circle, and persons is the blue circle, they overlap, but they don't coincide, right? Um, Some human beings are not persons. There might potentially be persons who aren't human beings, um, and some are. And the task for this view, of course, is going to be to explain the change, right? So uh, defenders of this view think it's um, somewhat obvious that this fertilized um, egg, right, zygote, shortly after conception, they, um, they, argue, they, they think it's obvious that this is not something that has moral value. And they think it's obvious that this is something that does have moral value, right? Well, that means that something changes along the way, right? And that means also that we are going to have to specify um, what changes along the way, because the view is that up until a certain point, destroying this thing is morally innocuous, Right. I I might be swatting. It's like swatting a fly, stepping on an ant. It's not a big deal. But then after that thing happens, whatever it is, if I take that thing's life, I've committed murder. I should go to jail probably for life. Right. And that means something momentous happens. Right. Something really big has to happen to get us from the blue to the red. Right. Um, And size isn't going to do it. Right. Most philosophers Um, willingly acknowledge that size isn't going to do it, appearance isn't going to do it, right? It doesn't become murder just because something got bigger, right? Something, Something important that changes something's moral status has to happen. And so most philosophers who defend answer number two, in fact, all philosophers that I know of, focus on the development of rational agency, Right? They argue that the line gets crossed when a thing develops a sufficient amount of rational agency, okay? And the support for this is just really an appeal to intuition, right? What, do you th- what makes you think something is valuable? You think it's valuable based on what it can do, okay? Um, if, you, if we dig a little further, right, we actually need to give, look at the criteria, like it, what amount of rational agency is enough, right? You, you're gonna have to get specific, Different philosophers give different answers to this. So Marianne Warren says, a thing's moral value depends on the degree to which it possesses self-concepts, motive, self-motivated activity, the ability to reason, right? Um, Michael Tooley, another defender of this view, says, um, you have to be able to know what life is and desire it in order for it to be wrong to kill you, Okay. Both of, these, um, both of these proposals um, end up giving us about the same scale, okay? So if we have our a scale of increasing moral value, and we have our, our zygote on the one side and our mature human being on the other, and we have our kind of, oh, it's not showing my little gray area that I had, but that's okay, I don't need it. The idea is if we, we take some point in this line, right, um, some stage in the development of an embryo, we, com- we compare what it can do to what other things can do, right? So, um, for instance, this little fish, does it have a self-concept? No, right? Does it have a- an ability to reason? No, right? Does it have self-motivated activity? Well, I mean, sort of, but it doesn't have the kind of thoughts and things like that. So, not very wrong to kill a fish, doesn't bother us a lot. And so on this view, any any developing human being whose abilities are akin to those possessed by a fish has a similar moral value and the wrongness of killing it would be similar, okay? Um, Dog, right, dogs um, score considerably higher on these tests, still not super high, right, but but higher. We we feel worse about killing dogs than we feel about killing fish, right? Okay. But if we're we're assessing moral value on the basis of the test, right, newborns are below dogs. They're not, I mean, they may be around the same as a fish, right? I mean, newborns don't reason. They don't have self-concepts. They don't have self-motivated activity, right? I don't, you guys are probably too young to remember Coco the gorilla. She used to have AOL chats. Uh, She knew some words. Um, she's going to score a lot higher on this test, right? Because she she knows some words. Um, she, I wouldn't say that she had self-concepts. We could debate that. But she certainly has, she scores higher on this test than a dog. We can fight about where dolphins go. I don't know if they trump Coco or not. Um, but clearly we have this increasing scale of moral value. Um, and then at some point, um, but all of these, all of these still don't, aren't things that we're unwilling to kill, right? I mean, we wouldn't put somebody in jail for life for killing a dolphin, probably, right? Or even Coco the gorilla in the way we would for killing this guy in cold blood, right? We just, their moral value still doesn't seem to have crossed that line. Well, by the time a child, this is my daughter, she's painting a picture. By the t- time a child becomes like three, four, they clearly pass that line. Right? And so philosophers like Warren and Tooley say, clearly wrong to kill, right? Until, um, until it, it can pass this test, not clearly wrong to tell, maybe worse to kill, right? But not, not clearly wrong to kill. And this is why Marianne Warren says that a woman who has an abortion to avoid having to postpone a trip to Europe should feel no qualms even if she's in her eighth or ninth month. She doesn't think think you're doing anything different than flushing a goldfish down the toilet. Why? Because the capacities are the same, right? Um, And and, um, Warren and Thule and others who hold this view think that that, um, the the reason for this is kind of obvious, right? Because we, we, we do assess value on the basis of rationality. Um, but I think it's also important to understand what this view commits us to, right? If we're going to assess moral value on the basis of our ability to pass the rationality test, right? It's important to understand everything that's tied up in that, right? So this answer claims that moral value depends on the possession, present possession of certain properties, right? Um, the moral seriousness of killing something has to do with how you score on the test right now, okay? And that means the personhood can be gained and lost. Right? think about somebody who is in a coma, not going to pass the test. Get out of the coma, pass the test. Get back in the coma, don't pass the test, right? The very young, right? I mean, many. it wasn't a fetus in that picture that had the same value as the fish, right? It was a newborn, right? The The very young... Many of those who are elderly, the severely mentally disabled, will not qualify as people on this view, right? And a very smart computer might someday qualify as a person. And it's important to notice that on this view of personhood, you get the result that the fetus is not a person. But there's no way of getting that result without also looping in the elderly, the severely mentally disabled, the very young. You can't, you can't just get the fetus in. You got to get everybody else in too, right? Because anything that scores poorly on that test is going to be okay to kill, right? Some philosophers who defend this view think it's a problem. Some don't, right? Marianne Warren uh, tries to get out of it. Tooley says, yeah, our moral intuitions are just screwed up, right? We shouldn't feel bad about killing newborns. They can't think. Right. We shouldn't maybe by the time you get a year or something like that. But the, those. So that's a that's a necessary consequence of answer number two. Okay? All right. So let's now flip and look at answer at a different answer, right, at a different account of personhood. And this is the view that rationality is going to be what I call normative. Michael Gorman, who was here a few weeks ago, he actually wrote a paper about this. His example is, is a woodpecker. I'm going to use um, the example of a, of a dog. Uh, well, of, yeah, of, of dogs. Um, so you look at that animal in the picture, right? That animal um, has three legs. Is it a dog? You think I'm stupid for asking whether it's a dog? I mean, it, it, like, why would I even ask whether it's a dog? Well, look, dogs are supposed to have four legs, right? If I asked you what a dog was, four legs would probably enter, figure prominently in your answer, right? The having of four legs, it would, be, it would be up there. That does not have four legs. And this is where people get annoyed with philosophers, right? Because you say, yeah, okay, uh, it, it doesn't have four legs, but it should have four legs, it would have four legs, Right, something went wrong. Right, Um, but it ought to have four legs, and if 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 dogs, if something counts as a dog simply because it ought to have four legs, then that's clearly a dog, right? And in philosophical speak, we call having four legs a norm for being a dog. Right, it's a norm. It's something that ought to be true of dogs. Just like having a certain number of teeth ought to be true of human beings. (laughs) Most of us don't, right? But there there are certain characteristics that are normative, right? And having four legs is what we call a norm, okay? Now, if you understand rationality to be normative and importantly related to moral value, you get a very different answer than you get if you take rationality to be something you have to possess right now to have moral value, right? Because answer number one says that a person is a being for whom rationality is normative. You're a person if you ought to be able to express reason in actions at the appropriate point in time. Not not if you can, right? But if you ought to be able to. Um, And so on this view, anything that ought to be able to exist rationality will have moral value. And so if we put the same point differently, assessments of value on the, the normativity view, right? Assessments of value are based on the kind of thing you are, not on what you can do, right? So if you take that account of moral value, you got the fish, you've got the newborn, you just can't even compare them, right? Because they're just completely different kinds of things. Right. And and they're subject to completely different norms. There's just not we can't I can't say anything about the value of the human being by pointing out that it can only do the things guppies do right now. It's just not relevant because the the infant rationality is normative for the infant in the way in a in a way that rationality is not normative for a fish. Okay. so why choose one view over the other? I think think this is really important to notice. Both views, both answer number one and answer number two, think rationality is fundamental to moral value. Both views think that rationality has a great deal to do with moral value, but they understand the importance of rationality differently. If you tie moral value to presently possessed rational ability, Right, Those who do, they say, well, we just do. Right? Marianne Warren says, pretend you landed on a planet and you were trying to figure out if it was okay to eat the aliens. What would you think about? You would think about whether they could talk. Right? And then you wouldn't do it. Right? Um, but those that insist that every rational being has value agree with that. But they simply maintain that our intuitions about a thing's value stem from the kind of thing something is and not from what it can do right now. So if you think of the Space Explorer example, yeah, if I traveled to another planet and I found out that this alien could talk and build space shuttles and cars, I I wouldn't need it. I probably would think it was wrong. But if I found something that failed the test and then realized it was a baby version of something that could do all of those things, I would probably still feel bad about eating. Right. Um, And Most of us would feel worse about killing a dolphin than we would an ant, but we would still probably also feel worse about killing a baby dolphin than we would an ant, right? Even if the baby dolphin couldn't pass the test, right? Um, So both sides are appealing to intuitions. The difference is how deep the intuition goes, right? Is, Is our intuition about value based on kind or is it based on presently possessed capacity, okay? So now, in order to move along, I'm going to turn to the other big question in the abortion debate, which is the question of bodily rights, the question of what I owe other people. This this question is in in some respects more pressing than the personhood question, because I think most people recognize that personhood is really thorny and difficult, right? And I think most philosophers, well, many philosophers, realize that personhood Uh, membership in our in our species um, either has to begin very early right or it has to uh, begin not until right if you're Michael Tooley or Marion Warren long after birth right so you either have to like loop in infanticide and all kinds of other stuff or you have to go with answer number one okay but some philosophers most famously Judith Jarvis Thompson say look at personhood is irrelevant what what's relevant um is whether your rights are being imposed on, right? Do I owe something, um, do I owe it to somebody else to save their life, even if it's going to greatly inconvenience me, right? And again, you get two very different answers. Some people, answer number one says, yeah, we are sometimes obliged to make sacrifices, even very significant ones for others, whether we signed up for them or not. Right, that's, that's one answer. Um, another very in- different answer is that I don't have obligations to others that I didn't sign up for, particularly where my body is concerned. Um, and again, I'm going to start with answer number two, and then um, look at some consequences of answer number two, and then explain answer number one in light of answer number two. Tom- Judas Jarvis Thompson has a very famous thought experiment um, the example of the violinist, and the example goes like this: right You wake up and you find out that while you slept, the society of music lovers kidnapped you, hooked you up to a famous unconscious violinist violinist is innocent had nothing to do with it um, and the violinist happens to have this rare disease that only your blood can cure, so you have to be hooked up as a kind of human dialysis machine to the violinist for nine months um then he'll be then he 'll recover. If you disconnect yourself before then he will die. Okay, and Thompson says says are you obliged to remain hooked up? Can you unplug yourself and walk away? And she thinks it's obvious that you can unplug yourself and walk away, and consequently that you're um, that it's legitimate for you to do um, similar things in analogous situations. And very clearly, as she herself. says the example is designed um, to um, be analogous to um, a woman who finds herself pregnant due to rape, right? So, um, and, and unplugging the violinist is supposed to be analogous to abortion. Now, there's a lot that you can say here. You can, you can deny the analogy. You can argue that unplugging is a lot different than, um, that some people think unplugging is different than killing. Etc., etc., etc. But I think if we really want to understand what Thompson's saying, we need to just bite the bullet, see where the argument goes. Okay. The key idea that Thompson is driving at here, as she herself says, is that having a right to life is not to have a right to anything whatsoever. Having a right to life, Thompson wants to argue is only to have a right not to be killed unjustly. Think about that. To have a right to life is only to have a right not to be killed unjustly. So even if we assume the fetus is a person, we've only, with a right to life, we've only agreed that it will be wrong to kill the fetus unjustly, okay? Um, And she, of course, wants to argue that not all instances of killing the fetus are instances of unjust killing, and hence not all instances of killing the fetus are violations of the fetus's right to life. She thinks that sometimes a mother um, can, who chooses abortion and... and, um, is not doing anything unjust when she kills the innocent person and hence not violating its right to life. So how does that go? Well, it goes like this, right? When you, she, when you um, choose an abortion, she says, um, to choose an abortion is to forcibly prohibit the fetus from using the woman's body for food, shelter, and nourishment, right? The, the child needs your body to remain alive. You're by force, if necessary, refusing to provide that support Refusing to provide that support is unjust only, she says, if the woman invited it to use her body in the first place, right? And since the woman does not always invite the fetus to use her body, the woman does not always act unjustly when she aborts the fetus, okay? So if we look at that argument, there's, you know, a lot of your your minds are probably going right to number one, right, and thinking that, like, I'm doing a lot more... Um, when, I, when I have an abortion, then just kind of plucking the intact fetus and putting it over here, right? That's true, right? But I doubt your opinions would change if, you know, say we passed a law. Okay, you have to like remove the fetus intact and alive and stick it over here until it dies of exposure. I doubt people's opinions about the wrongness of that would change that much, okay? The key, the key claim in this argument Is really number two, right? The claim that it is unjust to deprive the fetus of the use of the woman's body only if the woman invited it to use her body in the first place, only if the woman agreed to provide that support. Is that true? We have to think about whether it's really true that you don't have any obligations you didn't previously agree To have. It's not obvious, right? Um, Thompson thinks it's obvious, many people think it's obvious, many others don't think that that the truth of two is obvious, right? So some examples, right? Suppose you live in the wilderness, you find a newborn child on your doorstep, there's no one around, right? I don't know how it got there, maybe it was uh, parachuted out of a plane, someone came in the night, uh, helicoptered away, who knows? You live in the wilderness, you find a newborn child on your doorstep, right? Are you obliged to do anything? Can you just hmm, step over it, right? Go on about your day, come back, step over it again, wait until it dies? Like, is it, is it okay to do that? Suppose you live in the desert, right? And you're the only one with a well. And, and someone is uh, comes along dying of thirst. Right? Can you say, no, that's my well. You can't have it. I might need that water someday. Can you? Can you do? Would you be doing anything unjust if you refuse to let a person dying of thirst drink out of your well? Would you be guilty of an injustice? Drowning person, falling person, whatever grabs. You know, they grab onto you. Um, you have some. You have other things to do. Can you shake them off? Right? Do you have obligations in those cases? Right? Well, whether you do or not depends a great deal on your view of justice on right, what what is just and what is unjust? Thompson thinks that you do not have obligations um, to do the things on this side of the screen. right? She thinks you might be cool, <laughs> cold, cruel, callous, but not but you would not she thinks be unjust because that stuff is yours and you never said anybody else could use it, right? So if I only have obligations to others, if I first agree to have those obligations, I'm off the hook, right? I haven't done anything wrong, um, morally wrong. But if I have obligations to others just because they're human beings, right? If um, If I owe things to others, people, just because they're people, then I'm not off the hook morally, right? And what are at stake here are two very different views of justice, right? The view of justice that Thompson is assuming in her arguments is a kind of contractual view of justice, right? What I'm obliged, what I owe others depends on what I have agreed to, right? What we have mutually agreed to. The view of justice, um, the second view of justice, right, is, is what I call a kind of social justice view of justice, right? When we talk about a living wage, right, the obligation to give other people a living wage, That's a claim about what I owe other people as people, right? That even if I could get them to take something less, I am bound, right, by the fact that they are a person who makes a claim on me to give them a fair wage, okay? So what we have here um, in in the bodily rights question, um, even though there there are other things that can be said there are other arguments that can be made, really, though, what is the heart? Is a question of what do I owe other people with whom I interact in the world? Right? Do, do they make a, can they make a claim on me, even claims that cause me to suffer, right? Even claims that deeply, deeply, deeply inconvenience me just because of their humanity, right? Just, a, just because of who they are, right? Okay, so that's the, the second question um, that is um, at stake in debates about abortion. Okay, so where does all this lead us? Uh, so I've tried to go through some, go some way towards articulating the two philosophical questions that are at the heart of the abortion debate. The question of what makes something a person on the one hand, and the question of whether someone can be asked to accept a burden she does not want on the other. And I've tried to explain why different philosophers answer these questions in dramatically different ways. Some philosophers advocate access to abortion because they do not think the fetus has significant moral value. Others, because they think a woman's right not to be burdened, outweighs any value the fetus has, even if the fetus's life is assumed to be as valuable as ours. But as as should be clear from what I've said above, to oppose abortion is to commit oneself to to a significantly more substantial view, namely that the fetus... Has the same moral value as a mature adult simply in, being, in virtue of being the kind of thing that it is, and that one has obligations to persons simply because they are persons, even when it causes considerable inconvenience to oneself. These are certainly not the only arguments about abortion that can be given or have been given, but I think it is fair to say that the summary I have offered is a f- is a fair account of the most commonly given arguments. So, how is any of this helpful? Well, I think it can be helpful in two ways. First, the analysis we have engaged in here indicates that there are serious and important questions at the heart of the abortion debate. Opposition to abortion does not come down to, say, blind religious adherence to religious doctrine, and support of it does not stem from, say, ignorance of basic biology. There are difficult and profoundly important questions at the heart of the abortion debate, questions which both sides need to take seriously. Second and equally important, I think that the analysis here can help us to take a hard look at our own opinions. We too often and too easily assume that we have a firm foundation for the things we believe, but it can be worthwhile and productive to subject those beliefs to, philosophic, to philosophical scrutiny. Perhaps it won't immediately change our minds or anyone else's, but it might do something to make that change possible. Thank you.
0: Um, I'm probably going to hardball you. but Sure. um, So when is, if you have the choice between saving a thousand fertilized eggs or a newborn child, which would you save and why?
1: So this is one of those um, thought experiments, and I, I like thought experiments, right? Um, but I, it, I, think it's, I think it's a hard question to answer in, in the abstract. I mean, what's, what's going on? I'm, am I in a burning building or something, and there's like yeah. a case of embryos on the, on the one hand and, and, a, and an infant on the other or something like that? I would probably save the child. I'll be upfront about that, but I will also say this. Those fertilized embryos, right, are not um they're they're in their current state, they're dying, they're not they're not growing. Um they're not um implanted in the mother, right? Do I think they have value? Absolutely, I do. Absolutely I do. Um But they are not, um, they're not um, in, in their current state, they are dying, right? And they, they have shelf lives, they expire, right? And so I haven't saved them if I pull that box out of the burning building, right? I <laughs> and do I would have to like pull the box out of the burning building, go find a million women, implant them. So, right. I, I would have to do a lot more than that, whereas I can very easily save the life of this child.
0: And if you could, if you didn't know that they were going to get implanted, if you save them, would your answer change?
1: So now I'm going <laughs> to. What am I going to do? Am I going to like go round up a, a, a million women and implant say like a million babies? What's that?
0: Let's say they're already on the list
1: on a list to get implanted. Yep. Again, you have a, um, I don't know how much you know about uh, IVF, but you know that the the chances of those t- of that um, happening successfully are, are very very small, right? Yeah, I've done kind of quite a
0: bit of
1: study on IVF. As well. Yeah. Yeah. I sure. actually agree with you. I'm just playing devil's advocate. I <laughs> want to get this No, I mean no, I mean it, it, <laughs> it, it, it's
0: um, That's why I'm getting a new character.
1: I, I I noticed. I I like the dramatic. I like the dramatic reveal, right? Um, yeah. No. Um. I I would save the child. I don't think that there is an incompatibility with me saying that I would save the child, um, and anything that I've said here. Um. So if you think that there is an incompatibility, maybe you could spell that out for me.
0: Okay, so here's how I would go about answering it. Okay. I would also save the child, but my reasoning, I would propose a secondary thought experiment. I would say, let's say you have the choice between saving 10 people in a burning building and saving 11 people, which would you say?
1: I would say that I am not a utilitarian. Right. So, um, I, would, I, so I, I, I mean, I reject, um, I, I think one thing, one difference perhaps between us is that I, I don't think that moral decisions can be made on the basis of quantity alone, right? Um, I would save those nearest. I would save those I could, right? But I wouldn't sit back and be like, okay, one more, you win. I'm going to save you. Like, I, I, I reject that whole, like, I don't like those Batman movies where, like, he's like, oh, what would be better for the city? The woman I love or this guy? Oh, uh, I, I reject that entire line of thinking. Um, because I don't think that you can make assessments of value on on the basis of numbers, I think people in the history of philosophy have tried and tried and tried to do that, and um their 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 um, the deficiencies of that line of thinking when you really look at them sometimes become even become even uh, laughable i mean you you're down then you have how do you actually quantify the good right is it um then I have to, like, look not at the 10 versus 11, but I have to ask, like, how much did you give to the poor last year, each of you, right? Am I really benefiting the greater good by saving the greater number? Shouldn't I also think about whether this is a nicer person and how much he contributed to society? And then shouldn't I look at, like, how much the income they make or, like, how, not, how well they're going to raise their children? And in the house, there everybody's going to die before I enter. Before I arrive at that conclusion, right? I mean, I, I, don't, I, 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 I think that utilitarian thinking is deceptive and dangerous.
0: Okay, so basically, where I was going with it? Yeah, sure. Sorry. Um, was um, let's say the eleven people inhaled so much smoke, they're all going to die. And the ten people, well, they're going to be just fine if you save them. It's. A much easier decision from a utilitarian standpoint, but I mean, even not taking into those things into account, the fact that you would have chosen to save eleven lives in the first scenario versus ten lives in the second scenario, that doesn't mean that eleven lives in general are worth more than ten.
1: Sure, yeah, but I think I mean, so at the risk of at the risk of bringing in yet another. Um, hotly contested philosophical idea. I mean, I, I think when in, when these situations come up, um, the, the principle of double effect becomes relevant. I don't know if you accept or deny the principle of double effect. Um, but the principle of double effect uh, is the view that um, sometimes it can be acceptable to do things that you know will have um Will affect people adversely um, when you don't intend those consequences, right? So, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example that I agree with. Okay, if um, if people are there are uh, two people in an emergency room, right, and um, or or I have um, I have one dose of medicine, right, and I have to and I have to choose who to give it to right? Um, I might choose to give it to the person who it would, it would cure instead of the person who would, it would stop from dying for a minute, right? Now, oh, okay, am I, am I therefore a utilitarian? Well, not necessarily, right? Because um, (laughs) I I know that if I give the person, give it to the person whose life will be saved, the other person won't. But I don't, See, choosing the one person, choosing to save the one person, as uh, thereby choosing the death of the other person, right? I I choose to help the person I can help, um, and I and I choose to to um, do the most good I can. But that doesn't mean I'm deciding to kill the other person or something like that. So I, I yeah I agree, right? Um, sometimes you do have to make decisions. And sometimes a factor in, in those decisions will be um, where you can do the most good. But I, I don't think that agreeing to that makes me a utilitarian.
0: Okay, so I think that's a pretty good answer. Um, I would have answered it slightly differently. I would have. I'm, I think I consider myself more a utilitarian, but I'm still a moral absolutist when it comes to this. But... Um, that's a little bit different from how i would answer it but i think you
1: did a good job well thanks Yeah, <laughs> no, no, thanks i mean that's, it's a great i mean it's a great question so um I, i've never been asked it before but, but thanks You're welcome yes
2: thank you for lecturing professor it's always a pleasure hearing you so i, I went ahead and wrote down my questions so i can kind of organize my thoughts so going back to our, our mutual friends and thomas he talks about in question 118 of the Prima parts, he builds his idea of soul. This idea that the soul, once infused into the body, has a progression, typically, I think he estimates over 60 to 120 days, from a vegetative soul to an animalistic soul, then to a fully rational soul. Um, and for a while, different philosophers in the past said that, okay, if the fully rational soul is, is uh, developed at a much later date, than abortion could it be morally licit, and eventually this was condemned by Pope Alexander VIII. Um, however, I've kind of been wafting back and forth on not the licitness of abortion that I'm firmly, firmly against, but on does the insolvent view have any merit
1: to it? Yeah, sure. And
2: so I have kind of a two-sided question. Um, one, what is your, your personal thoughts on ensoulment? insolvent? But then two, if a theologian was to hold on to the insolvent view and also hold that abortion is morally uh, or is immoral, would this be due to your normative
1: claim? Uh, okay, good S- great so um, really good question um, so he's what he, what he 's talking about, of course is the, the what 's known as the theory of delayed hominization, right and what what 's at stake in what what's at root what the, the principle that motivates the claim right? Is a principle that says that a form can only inher in fitting matter, right? And the claim would be that a ration, that there is not matter fit to receive the form of a rational soul until that that matter is significantly sophisticated um, to um, to receive the form. So it's not that it's not the case that like you would actually have have to be able to think, right? But that but that the body would have to be sufficiently developed. Um, now, just to, to give a, a bit of context to, or kind of a, a bit of uh, additional mo- or information, um, yeah, so Aquinas held views about delayed hominization. Many, um, many, many others, including priests, uh, Father Wallace, um, thought that the theory of delayed hominization was true. The, the except and you're right except thinking that delayed harmonization is true does not automatically mean you therefore accept abortion right, right. well why not um, because right on on the Catholic view you don't interfere with with life right I mean you you don't interfere with the with the creation of life so it wouldn't be um, if, if you think a, de, a delayed harmonization is true that um, Prior to forty days, wouldn't have a rational soul, doesn't right? It has the, the pre-stage of the rational soul, right? Um, so it is not a a um, a being of a rational nature yet, right? Um, but it is um, it is on its way to becoming a being with a rational nature and will, if all goes right. Um, so it's not it's not quite based on kind. Right? Because on the delayed harmonization view, there actually is a, a kind of change in kind. Um, but it would still be wrong to interfere with it because it's wrong to interfere with the generation of, of life. OK. Um, and I mean, so that I think that's the account that, that some people would give. Now, if you're going to if you're going to evaluate this claim, I think that you have to kind of back up and say, wait. Why? Right. Like you can you can agree that forms have to in fitting matter and still not think that the fitting that the that the child has to develop to the point that the, there's a cerebral cortex before the matter is fitting to receive the form of it right that doesn't make much sense right i mean the the in um they've in the fertilized egg right when when the sperm fertilizes the egg and it divides in two that is already becoming, right? The, the, the information of everything a rational human being will have is already there. Is, scientists have, have done studies where they've, not that I approve of this, right? Um, but scientists have done studies where they, where they um, dye one cell blue and one cell pink. And all of the pink cells go on and form the placenta and the blue cell goes on and forms the, the fetus, right? It's very sophisticated from, a, right, from the get-go all that information is there and so it's not clear to me why you can't say that 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 the, the matter is from the very moment of conception suited to receive the form of, of rational nature it, it takes right because it's not it's not like you never have matter just sitting around it's not like you have the statue of the person and then you the soul like gets dropped in the soul makes the matter what it is right and so i thought this is It's a view of Aquinas that's a view that comes from a view of Aristotle's. And I don't really understand why either one of them thought it was so important. If that's any answer. Um,
2: Yes. All right. So I I do want to follow up on on Nick's question. Because if we follow this train of thought, we
0: make the distinction between something bad versus something evil? We're a pre-rational soul. It can still be bad, but it's not necessarily evil. Whereas once it's rational, it's evil.
2: I mean, I'm always against abortion, you know, <laughs> at, at, at every stage, but isn't that the danger of it?
0: That if, if, if you do have this process... Why can't we just
1: say Aquinas? I, that's what I was saying.
0: Oh, oh, oh OK. All right. So
1: that's a, that's what I, I mean. I was saying Aquinas thinks that there has to be um, the matter has to be fitting to receive the form. Right. And I was saying that the moment of fertilization, the matter is fitting to receive the form. That, I, I disagree with Aquinas. I just think he was wrong.
0: So um, statistically speaking, countries that have banned abortion have higher maternal death rates. Uh-huh. States within the U.S. that have banned it have a higher rate of maternal death. Uh-huh. And um, statistically speaking, abortion is safer than childbirth for the mother. How would you rationalize banning it?
1: So I think that the first point, so I, I'm not going to, argue with you on the claims you just made, but um, I, that's not to say I agree with them, right? Especially about harms of abortion and things like that, right? Um, um, but with that, um, with that preliminary, I do think that it is very important to distinguish the philosophical question from the social question, right? So you can vehemently, vehemently, vehemently oppose abortion and not have one view of what the answer is, right? So just because I um, oppose abortion doesn't necessarily mean that I think that um, a, abortion, you know, mothers who have abortion should go to jail and this and that and the other thing, right? I never mm-hmm. said that, right? I mean, that there are there are prudential questions about. How to move forward, how to reduce abortions, and, and to take a position on the wrongness of something is different. Like, I also think it's wrong to um, do what Russia is doing in the Ukraine. That doesn't commit me to an answer about what the solution is. And thank God I don't have to solve it, right? You, yeah, there, there's, there's prudence, there's knowledge, there's wisdom that is needed to think about how we move forward, right? And so, um, plenty of people who oppose abortion. Um, think that that um, decisions should just go back to individual states, right? Um, that, that Roe was a bad decision. Roe, well, I think um, Roe was a bad decision. But thinking that Roe was a bad decision doesn't mean that you automatically support a constitutional amendment to do that. Blah blah, right? There's there's many a slip between cup and lip, right? I mean, y- you can admit that there is a moral absolute, and and. If you're an honest person and honest about your own insight into solving the world's problems, you can say, I don't know how the right way to move forward is. And we need to be careful and we need to be compassionate and we need to. Right. I mean, so um, even if I thought that abortion was safer for women than childbirth, which I vehemently do not. Right. Um, That doesn't mean that I'm. going to impose martial law on the United States, and yada, yada, yada.
0: Okay, Uh, to address those claims, um, that's technically true that it, it, that it is, that maternal death rates are higher in those countries, but technically those countries that have banned abortion in Africa, Central America, the Middle East, South America, tend to have poor access to drinking water. So these factors account for a higher maternal death rate. As for cases within the US, statistically southern states are among the poorest states with the least access to good health care. So these account for the higher number of maternal death rates which coincide with or are independent of
1: Yeah, and I mean I'm just saying that numbers are numbers. Lots of stuff there there's lots of there are lots of things that go into those numbers, you know. Okay. Um, and um so and i'm i'm not a social scientist i don't have those numbers at hand and i'm also a philosopher which means that i think things that can be wrong <laughs> and and remain wrong even if you make the case that the consequences of doing them are a lot better like that doesn't make the thing right to do um and and so um i know it it sounds like an ivory tower kind of answer but but uh, um if you if you were to convince me that um, women are better off for having abortions than having children, then I would say, well, we need to figure out how to how to change that. But you wouldn't change my position on the on the morality of abortion.
0: And I was No, no
1: I, no, I know, I know. I just, yeah. I don't mean to talk so vehement, but I just, I get animated when I talk. So I, I don't, I'm not attacking you or anything. Oh, yeah. yeah, okay. We yeah.
2: have time for one more question. Is, is there anyone who has to ask a question wants to go for it? Um, I'm a little late, but I'll ask this because I'm currently writing a story on it as a journalist. In regards to something like Senate Bill 8, where a person can be
0: punished for by the state by having a fine or being sued by anybody, long story, Essentially, is if we assume that abortion is morally wrong, is it morally wrong on the part of anyone who enabled that abortion? Like, say, the doctor performed it, or say, somebody who drove them there.
1: I think so. I, I wouldn't drive someone to have an abortion. Um, I mean, in and this, I mean, you know, Catholics um, make this distinction between formal and material cooperation, right? And um, you know, should the gas station attendant sell gas, right? I mean, it's, at a certain point, you're like, okay, it's like, I'm, I participated, you know, and, and you can't hold people morally culpable, right? But it, there are certain things that that um, seem like active participation in it. Now, in saying that, um, I am not stating an opinion about the bill, right? And the, about the bill you mentioned, right? Um, but I, I do think that if, if something is wrong, Right, Um, and you help someone do it. You're deliberately and knowingly facilitate the doing of it. You're participating in the wrong. Right? How much would depend on the on the context and the degree. Right. Uh,
2: Well, let's join uh, in congratulating Dr. Noble. (laughs)